There are so many boxes up here that I've got to go the long way around the, the table. It's a good problem to have. You know, it's... It's this time of year that we begin, I think, sometimes to be a little more introspective. I think some of it is, is, is things have a tendency. Now, things in the holidays can be very busy, but when the weather starts getting a little, a little colder, we start staying in a little bit more. We start slowing down a little bit. We start reflecting a little bit more. And, and as we are in this, this season, this season that we call the holiday season, and you know, we get into Thanksgiving, it's important for us to stop and, and look and think about what it is that we have to be thankful for, but also a recognition that our Thanksgiving can only come out of, as we are calling this series, a satisfied soul. A soul that finds contentment in God. This is the second week that we're looking at Philippians uh, 4 and what it means to be satisfied and content in Christ. Last week we, we looked at the beginning of Philippians 4 and we looked at the, the, the things that Paul had to say about joy and finding joy in God. This week we're going to be looking at trust and entrusting God to provide for us. How many of y'all remember the Waltons? The TV show, not the family. I mean, the family's, the TV show is about a family, but... I did not know this until relatively recently. Did you know that the Waltons did not start as a TV series? It actually started originally as a book written by a guy about his upbringing. But the first time that we saw the Waltons on TV were a made-for-TV movie that aired on CBS in the very, very early 70s called The Homecoming. Now, if you don't remember the Waltons, the Waltons is a show about a family growing up, um, living in rural western Virginia, during the 1930s and the very early 40s. It's about them trying to survive on their farm, on their mountain, in the midst of the Depression and then later World War II. But it starts with this made-for-TV movie called The Homecoming that's about John Sr., the dad, trying to get home to the mountain on Christmas Eve because he has had to go several towns over to the mill to find work. And it starts, and it starts, and the kids are taking the, the cow. Well, the cow's actually gotten out, and, the, and John Boy and the others are bringing the cow in, and all the kids are very anxious because their dad is not home yet, and he had promised them that he would be home for Christmas. It's getting on on Christmas Eve, and he is not home yet. Of course, John Boy tells them that they need to Mind their mother today because she's anxious because daddy's not home yet. Now eventually, of course, John Sr. shows up 
late in the evening with a sack. With a sack full of wrapped presents. All the children get exactly what they want for Christmas. One of them gets a or harmonica, one of them gets a train set, one of them gets a doll. Again, this is 1933. And for them, it's like a miracle that, that daddy showed up and he had the sack full of presents. But what we know as we're watching the show is that John Sr. has gone several towns over to work in a mill to earn the money to provide Christmas for his family. The father has been looking out for the children. And today we're going to look at how our Heavenly Father takes care of us. Provides us with what we need even in times of great uncertainty. We are in the book of Philippians, the fourth chapter. We're going to be starting with the tenth verse. If you have your Bible with you, I'd encourage you to turn. Philippians chapter 4, starting with verse 10. If you don't have a copy of Scripture with you, grab one of those black hardback Bibles from the pew back in front of you. And if you need one, take it with you and have that be our gift to you. Philippians 4, starting with the 10th verse. Will you stand with me as we read God's Word together? I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content with whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent gifts for my need several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. But I have received everything in full, and I have abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Ephrodotus, which you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God. Read it. Believe it. And live it. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly God, as we as we open your word this morning, as we seek to, to find contentment, as we seek to have our souls satisfied, God, I just pray that your word would, would show us where to find that, how to find that, that we would leave today a little more content than we were coming in. And God, as we study your word, I just pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts are acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. 
So we're here, we're in Philippians 4, and the first part of the chapter that we looked at last week, right, is, is Paul telling the believers in Philippi to rejoice in the Lord always, to focus their mind on what is good. We saw that last week, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always, I say it again, rejoice, in case you didn't get it the first time, let me say it again, and then he ends there in, in verse 8 with Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, pure, lovely, commendable, there's any moral excellence, if there's anything praiseworthy, to dwell on those things. So this is, this is, this is the setup to where he, where he is today. But it's important for us to remember, let's remind ourselves, where Paul is writing this letter from. Paul is writing this letter to the church in Philippi, from a jail cell. So he's just told them to rejoice, to think on whatever is good and honorable and just and pure. And he's told them to do that from a jail cell. And Paul's about to tell them how content he is and how well provided for he is. And he's going to tell them that from a jail cell, from prison. I'm reading um, the, I don't know if you'd call it an autobiography, memoir of one of my Baptist heroes, James Ireland. Now, James Ireland's a name that probably doesn't get used in North Carolina very much because he was a Virginia Baptist preacher in the 18th century, in the 17, uh, starting in the uh, late, mid to late 1760s. I may have mentioned him to you before, but James Ireland was arrested and put in the Culpeper County Jail for about five months in the late 1760s, very early 1770s. He was one of 30 Baptist ministers who was jailed in that time period in Virginia for the crime of preaching the gospel. James Ireland had been warned not to preach. The sheriff had come to him the night before he was arresting him and said, if you preach tomorrow, I will arrest you. And so James Ireland stays up all night praying and fasting, asking God what he should do. And the next morning he wakes up and he borrows a table and he goes out to a property line and he sticks the table over the property line and climbs up on the table to preach. Now he does it that way because the sheriff had also told him, and I'll arrest anybody on whose land you stand when you preach. And so... He didn't want to get the landowner in trouble and so takes that table and places it over the property line. In the five months that he is in jail, the, the people in the community try to kill him several times. At one point, they try and blow the jail up. They, try, they poison his food at one point. And eventually, what they do is they recruit an assassin to be arrested for drunken behavior to go into the jail cell to kill him. In the midst of all of this, what James Ireland does is he continues to pray. He continues to preach. He preaches from the window of the jail. And when this assassin comes into the jail cell with him, he preaches to him, he presents him the gospel, he saves him, and then recruits him to be his bodyguard. In spite of all of the abuse, in spite of all of the abuse, 
Through it all, not only did Ireland continue to preach, but he continued to send letters of encouragement to his friends, signing them, from my palace in Culpeper. I bring up this story about James Ireland because it's important for us to know that it's not just Paul who has found the ability to be content and to be joyful and to be satisfied and to be provided for in the face of jail and persecution. James Ireland is just another example One of many, many examples. Now, I have to be honest with you. I'm not entirely sure that if John Edwards were to walk through the back door of the church this morning and were to arrest me for preaching the gospel and were to send me up to the county jail and for me to sit there for five months, that I would be able to write to you a letter from my Lumberton Palace I'll be honest, I don't know that I would have the strength that James Ireland had, that Paul has here in Philippians. But again, it's not just these two men. Believers throughout history have been able to express joy and contentment in the face of prison and awful Conditions. And the truth of the matter is, in the English-speaking world and beyond, many, many, many of those believers who have gone to jail for preaching the gospel have been Baptists. Paul's able to express this joy and then this provision and this contentment that he finds. This trust that he has in God. It says here in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care of me. You were in fact concerned about me but lacked the opportunity to show it. See, see Paul, is, Paul is one of these, these folks. He doesn't have a mission board sending him. This is, this is before the cooperative program. There aren't churches pooling their resources, sending them to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem saying, okay, well, this missionary needs this much, and this missionary needs this much. No, Paul's, Paul's not working off an associational model of missions. He's working off a self-funded model of missions. If Paul wants to eat, Paul's got to raise his own money. We know in some places in Scripture that Paul has a trade, that Paul's a tent maker, and so that in certain, sometimes that's how he supports himself, as he actually works while he's on his missionary journeys. But, but what he's thanking the Philippians for here, this church in Philippi, is he's thanking them for having sent money to support him. And he says that he rejoices in the Lord greatly. That they had done this. See, he doesn't say, I thank you church in Philippi, for sending me your money. No, he says, I thank God that you sent me this money. And and he thanks God again, even though, notice, they hadn't sent him money before, had they? He says, you've wanted to show me, but you have lacked the opportunity. And yet he says, I thank the Lord greatly, because once again, because once again, 
See, Paul understands the providence of God. Providence is, is God arranging things beforehand for the fulfillment of his purpose. I know that sometimes as we, as we run through life, or sometimes as we fall through life, it feels like that things are chaos, that there's not a plan. It feels like that things are, are out of whack. It can, feel like that, it can feel like sometimes that we've climbed up a tree, and now we're falling and we're hitting every branch on the way down. And yet, what, what God's providence tells us is that God is in control. That there's no such thing as luck or chance or coincidence. That if something doesn't work out, it's because God has another plan. God takes things and he, Paul tells us in Romans, right? He tells us that God, what? He works all things together for good for those who love him. Some of us looking out, and I know some of your stories, I know my story, some of us have had some, some hard days, some hard seasons in life. Some of us are in the middle of hard seasons right now. And yet in the midst of all of that, somehow God is working all things together for his purpose and for your good. Sometimes when we're in the middle of that, right, it doesn't feel like it. I'm sure that when Paul was first arrested and thrown in prison, it would be very easy for him to feel as if this was not working out according to God's plan and for Paul's good. I'm sure that when, when James Ireland was pulled by the mob off of that table in Culpeper County and thrown into jail and they tried to blow him up and they tried to poison him and they tried to murder him, I'm sure it didn't feel like that this was according, according to God's promise and God's purpose. And yet, in the midst of that, what happens? Ireland meets this man who, to be honest, history has forgotten his name. This man who did not know Jesus. And Ireland was able to preach give him the gospel and to see him be saved. We, we can put together plans and they, sometimes they can be plans of mice and men and yet God, God has another plan. And here's the thing, y'all. I've read the end. God wins. God's plan comes to fruition. In, on, at Christmas, we're going to be looking at promises of God. God honors His promises. Paul continues, I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I find myself. I know how to make do with a little. I know how to make do with a lot. How many of us know how to make do with a lot? Now how many of us really know how to make do with a little? Some of you do. Some of you do. Some of you were, were raised by parents who came up during the Depression. And they passed that on. When, when my great-grandmother died, who never had very much, 
there were somewhere in the neighborhood of 658 million aluminum pie pans in her cabinet. And somewhere in the neighborhood of about 6 billion Cool Whip and butter containers. Because she knew how to make do with a little. Led an incredibly rich life with never probably more than four digits in the bank account. See, Paul's, Paul's turning now to this, to this situation that he's in, and he's saying, I'm content in the situation. He says, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I've learned to be content. See, this is, this is something that Paul's, that Paul's learned. There was at some point in Paul's life when he didn't know how to be content in whatever circumstance he found himself in. He learned how to do it. He says he's learned the secret, whether he has a lot or whether he has a little. You see, because contentment means being satisfied and at rest with God where God has you, despite what's happening around you. Sometimes God puts us in some, some really not terribly pleasant, not terribly comfortable situations and circumstances. And we have, to, we have to learn how to be satisfied and at rest where we are. Because it's not natural. It's not automatic. And I'm going to say this. Sometimes we do this thing like, oh, well, if you're saved, you'll learn that. If you're saved, if you know Jesus, that's going to come automatically. That's not true. You still have to learn it. You still have to, to practice it. It's not, a, it's not this, this automatic thing that comes. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, gifts of the Spirit. Is contentment one of those? Contentment is, is a learned thing. See, God teaches us contentment through the ups and downs of our changing circumstances. He wants us to learn to depend on Him and Him alone. To depend on His divine enablement no matter what happens to us or around us. This is a lesson that He teaches the Israelites as they're, as they're walking through the wilderness. And they, they start being discontent, right? So what does God do? God... God has Moses strike the rock and bring forth water. And then they're still discontent, and so God gives them manna. But he gives them very important, very specific instructions. Do you remember what those are? Gather only what you need for today. Except on the day before the Sabbath, and then you gather what you need for that day and the Sabbath. But you gather only what you need Because he was teaching them a lesson that what they were having was not because of their work, not because they were going out and gathering the manna and hoarding it and keeping it. No, they were provided for because God was providing for them. As we grow in our understanding and as we experience God's divine providence, we will also grow in our level of contentment. In verse 13, Paul confesses, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, this is one of those verses. I bet you right now, if you go to Cracker Barrel, you'll be able to find some 
little sign or coffee mug or magnet or something that has this verse on it. This is one of those that we love to pull out of context and use to make ourselves feel good. I can do all things through a Bible verse taken out of context. Because, see, we do this, and we take this verse, and we do things with it, and we act like that it's about us achieving our personal victory on the football field or the golf course or, or whatever struggle it is that we're dealing with, and we, we totally miss what comes right before it. Where Paul's saying, I've learned to be content in a little, and I've learned to be content in a lot. I've learned that whether I'm fed or hungry, whether I'm in abundance or in need, that I'm able to do all things through Him who strengthens me. We we sometimes we take this verse and and we cheapen it. See, this is about remaining faithful to God and content in His provision in the face of enormous odds. Paul has had some times of abundance of his life and time... Paul has had some times of privation, and he's currently in a time of privation. He is in jail. And let me tell you, it's, it's not like going to jail these days where you're fed a decent meal and all. No. And yet, he says, I can do all things because God strengthens me. The secret of Paul's contentment is the infusion of strength that he gets when he can't go any further under his own power. Many times it seems like that God doesn't come through for us until we take one more step. And then he provides at just the right time, which is what he's done for Paul through the Philippians. This this lesson of contentment is most effectively learned sometimes in the times of our deepest suffering and our deepest need. Continuing to to build on this theme of contentment in God's providence, Paul recounts the Philippians' faithfulness to him in the past, there in verses 15 and 16. He says, says, even when I was in Thessalonica, you, you sent me gifts several times. But see, he's, he's, he's bringing this up because he wants them to know that in serving Him, they've been serving God. That He desires to increase, increase their account, their heavenly reward. See, Paul says, look at this language that he uses there in verse 18. He says, I've received everything in full and I have an abundance. I've received from Ephraim what you have provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Does that language sound familiar? It's the way the Old Testament describes the offerings offered to God in the temple. So, church in Philippi, you have sent me a gift. So, church in Fairmont, you have, you have sent gifts out to the world. But what you've really been doing is offering a sacrifice to God. You you think you've taken a box and you've put some toiletries in it and you've put a wow gift in it and you've maybe put a little note in it and then it's going to go to some kid and it's going to make them feel good and you feel good and 
But what you've really done is you've offered a sacrifice to God. What you've really done thinking that you were serving this child. What you've really done, Philippi, thinking you were serving Paul, is that you've served God. You've offered a sacrifice just as they did in the Old Testament. Just as they did in the temple. Paul continues telling them that they will be blessed for their generosity, promising them that God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. In other words, the, the, their generosity has led to God's provision. God is concerned not only about our receiving from Him, but He also wants others to receive from us. In other words, God doesn't want to just give you a miracle. He wants you to be a miracle for somebody else. Because that brings God glory. Paul's grateful for for how God has used the Philippians and for how generous they are. It's important to keep in mind the role that we can play in bringing contentment to another person. Brothers and sisters, we live in connected communities. We live in this, this body of Christ. And what happens if one, if one part of the body is sick? If one part of the body is not being taken care of, it can make the rest of you feel bad, can it? I was reading in this um, book about James Ireland. In the introduction, it was talking about his family. And he had a brother. He was born in Scotland. He had a brother who had a broken leg and who died from a broken leg. We don't think about dying from broken bones very much. But that's how interconnected our bodies are. And that's how interconnected we are as the body of Christ. When one of us is broken, when one of us is sick, it affects all of the rest of us because we are interconnected. And so, we have a role not only in in finding contentment, but also in helping others find contentment in God. See, God will provide for our needs, but he, he may do so in some unusual or roundabout ways. There was an article that was in Guidepost several years ago about this interesting donation that came to a food pantry. Um, a, a local restaurant, for whatever reason, they hadn't talked to the food pantry ahead of time. They wanted to do a food drive. And so they figured the easiest thing to do is they would ask people to bring in a box of cereal to the restaurant. And so they ended up with hundreds of boxes of cereal. So they bring them all to the food pantry. And the food pantry is thinking, what in the world are we going to do with hundreds of boxes of cereal? And literally... Later that afternoon, they received an email from a teacher at the local public school who said that because of budget cuts, the kids weren't getting as much during their subsidized lunch as they had been, and the school wanted to start providing and supplementing at breakfast and at lunch. And did they have anything that they could bring to the school to help with that? 
Contentment is easy when you have everything that you need. But when times are tough, when the bank account is shrinking, when the pantry's growing lean, when, when, when relationships fall apart, when, when you lose your job, when life seems to be coming apart at the seams, that's when you can trust that God will supply you with everything that you need. And then, in that moment, experience peace. Not too long ago, every English-speaking Protestant was raised on Fox's Book of Martyrs. Fox was a, was a gentleman who, who lived in the early 17th century and the early 1600s who went back and collected the stories of all of the English Protestants and martyrs that were killed during the reign of Mary Tudor. And one is a story of five martyrs, people of no real consequence. A lot of them were bishops and priests and politicians, but these are just five normal people. John Lomas, Agnes Snot, Snoth, excuse me, Anne Wright, Joan Soule, and Joan Catmer. Several of those women were widows because their husbands had already been martyred, and they were brought in together, and they refused to recant, and they were all executed together, and this is how Fox describes it. They were burned at two stakes in one fire, singing hosannas to the glorified Savior. Now, I'm not sure how I would react if I got thrown in jail. I know that if I was tied to the stake and set on fire, I would not sit there and in my final moments sing hosannas to my glorified Savior. In fact, some probably very unpastorly words and expressions would come out of my mouth. But those five people had trust in God and in God's provision and in God's providence. Because they knew that no matter what was to happen to them in that fire, that God was going to work it for his purpose and for their good. Developing biblical contentment is a discipline. And in this case, it is an act of trust. And so the question we have to ask ourselves, can you trust that God will provide and to remember to thank him when he has done so? And even when the flames of life are licking around you, trust and sing his praise. Our hymn of invitation this morning is going to be